Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The experiences that I relish in my life and look forward to with eagerness are those that expand my mind and my understanding and awareness and my vision of what is possible. Usually those experiences are with or because of someone, someone whose ideas and example change me for the better. This is especially true as it relates to my faith and my experience with God. I am thankful for and indebted to those who open me up to God, even if that is not the words that they choose to use for it. Believing as I do Jesus' words from his Sermon on the Mount, that God makes the sun to rise and gives rain to us all, I understand that to mean that God's love is expressed through the giving of God's gifts to everyone, gifts that can and should be shared so that we all have something to offer one another. Opened, joyful listening and sharing conversation seems a very Christian way of living to me, although it is not just Christians who live that way. One such person who has opened my experiences is my guest today, Michael Moses. When I was teaching at Palm Beach Atlantic College, now university, I initiated the Institute for Christianity and the Arts. In addition to offering a variety of events, I also taught some related classes, Christianity and the Arts being one of those courses, but also Christian worship. And in each of those classes, the students and I explored the relationship and the use of the different art forms with faith and worship. One of those art forms was liturgical dance. That led me to build a relationship with one of the college's dance instructors. She was working with Michael and having him play for rehearsals and also performances. So she introduced us, and in getting to know Michael more fully, I invited him to come to my classes. Michael is a person of deep faith. His parents and he are Jewish, and Michael lives into and through the shaping of that heritage, but his experiences have led him to the desire for and a quest for a broader and more inclusive spirituality, which I will let him tell you more about in a moment. What especially was opening for me in the experience with Michael is that he's explored his spirituality through sound and rhythm. What this means also is something that I'll let him explain to you. So welcome, Michael. Thank you for being with me today. Well, thank you, David. I, I just, uh, I'm thrilled to be here and sharing this time with you. Well, let's begin by letting you kind of tell your own journey, your own spiritual journey, uh, and how uh, you uh, are exploring that uh, through the notion of sound and rhythm. I'd be happy to. And first off, thank you for that uh, thoughtful introduction. Now, what I especially love about the timing of this conversation is that it's, uh, it shocked me into remembering that it's been about 20 years since we last sat down and had a similar conversation. And it truly goes by in an eye blink. So it's uh, it's a real benefit for me to sit here 20 years later and gauge what has transpired in those years and how 
closely I remain connected to my original vision and how far I've drifted. It's a great, um, a great gauge for that. So as you know, when we first met, um, I had just moved to Florida after um, spending 15 years in residency with the Omega Institute of Holistic Studies in uh, Rhinebeck, New York, which is basically a, um, I used to say it was a, um, a blend of a spiritual university and club med. And somewhere between those two poles, we try to find a balance. So um, as you mentioned correctly, I grew up in a household that was uh, very connected to Jewish heritage not orthodox by any means, but a very strong connect, connection to the heritage and to the roots of, I'm tempted to say more of the culture than the religion itself. Now, I grew up in a house where God was not a question. God was a given. It, there, there were no debates about it. There was no issues of doubt or even issues of faith. It was simply a given. And, and we understood that to... Uh, to be a constant in our life. Now, I was a child of the 60s. So as the 60s showed up, I was entering my post-puberty teenage years. And the combination of those two forces, uh, like they did for so many people, really exploded us into this process of self-discovery and questioning the upbringing that we had, no matter who we are. Um, it was a time of great turmoil, a time of great questioning, and a time of great going deeper into our personal depths and roots. And I really um, embraced that process. So I never turned away from my Jewish heritage, but I never considered myself a so-called practicing Jew. Uh, but I've learned many lessons from that upbringing. And through my growth through the 60s and that development, um, I think what, what, what it showed me more than anything was where my priorities were grounded and rooted. And for the next 15, 20 years, um, I would say my entire life was grounded in the pursuit of, um, of what I would call my personal trinity, which was the arts, spirituality, and nature. And those were my priorities. I had no interest in school. I had no, very little interest in conventional pursuits, but I had a deep, deep interest in art, nature, and spirituality. And for the next 15 years, mostly through a great addiction to books and reading, um, I dove very deeply into that world. And it moved me so much that that led me to then seek out um, the employment possibilities, which did come to fruition through the Omega Institute, which I consider my my university, for lack of a better description. And, um, you know, traveled through those years and met many teachers uh, who became my guides in many ways and embraced the teachings from a multitude of perspectives and uh, and sources of inspiration, whatever the religion, whatever the spirituality might be, I tried to, like many in, the, in that generation, try to gather the most positive elements wherever I could and question the elements that um, didn't resonate as deeply as I, 
as I, I might have been taught. Uh, so that was my primary motivation through all those years. And then my love of art, primarily of sound and rhythm, like you mentioned, then what that created was the framework for me to be able to then express and share my, my um, spirituality with those that care to listen, whether it was an audience or, or simply one-on-one -on -one uh, in-depth, you know, conversations. Well, you, you had uh, told me in one of our conversations that uh, uh, kind of like John Cage, you, you um, uh, broaden the boundaries uh, of music and even in some ways uh, uh, consider music as a confining term and prefer the term uh, sound and rhythm. Kind of go into a little more detail about that. Certainly. Um, when people ask, uh, people ask musicians, well, who's your favorite musician? Who, or, or more so, they'll ask, who, what's your favorite kind of music? Looking for a specific answer. And the wiser uh, artists who I've dealt with, their answer typically was, I don't listen to music. I listen to musicians. The point being, let's go deeper than the style it doesn't matter whether it's whether i'm supposed to like rock or i'm supposed to like country or i'm not supposed to like gospel or i'm supposed to it's not about the style it's about the heart and the presence of the individual musician reflecting their art so point being is that there's a level deeper than simply the genre of music you know we're so quick to describe our world in black and white and so quick to describe our world in duality. It's either this or that. It's I like this, I don't like that. Life is much more interesting in, in between those two poles. So I will never say, you know, when someone says, do you like country music? My, uh, my knee-jerk response is, well, it depends what country. Great. <laughs> 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 point, point being, some, you know, like, do you like classical music? Some of it I do, some I don't. Do you like country? Some I do, some I don't. It has more to do with the artists and what they are saying in their presentation. What language are they using? What words are they reflecting? What principles are they reflecting? If they're reflecting principles of unity and peace, I don't care if it's gospel, country, rap, or blues or or you know whatever it might be it's the message inside the art that interests me more than the genre or the style you know that's where it becomes less about music and more about sound and rhythm because at a deeper level it's not even about sound and rhythm what it's truly about in the language of the holiest books from all disciplines it's about vibration in the western bible in the beginning there was nothing and then something moved and all of a sudden now there was polarity now all of a sudden there was dark and light now all of a sudden there was good and evil all of a sudden there was a vibration and once that vibration showed up you know another word for vibration in certain biblical translations in the beginning the beginning there was the word first there was nothing then there was the word and what we forget about the word is the word has nothing to do with language. Language to people that don't know the meaning of the language are just arbitrary sounds. 
you know when we hear someone speaking chinese if we don't know chinese it sounds like gibberish we might be speaking the most profound uh you know interpretations of the most sacred texts but if our if the listener doesn't understand our language it just sounds like gibberish so before language there was sound and before sound there was vibration so when people talk about the healing properties of music there are no healing properties to music there are healing properties to vibrational energy and if you can translate those vibrations into sound then the next step is translating it into music because what happens is a lot of people they disconnect and shut themselves off from the positive potential if they're only listening to the music because there might not be a music they like if they don't if they perceive the music as a, as a style they don't like or enjoy listening to they will not go deeper than that and they will never reach that point of well what is the artist truly saying what is the artist truly feeling here because they've already had their gave into their bias so as we spoke about uh, in an earlier conversation the cathedrals of europe are some of the most beautiful architectural structures in in the world but many of us don't realize they weren't built because of their architectural beauty they were built because how the acoustics affected the vibrations of the sacred texts that were sung in those structures that's what transformed and moved the congregation it wasn't the fact that they were in a room with beautiful stained glass windows but it was it was because when the choir began singing that space vibrated at a frequency that really turned hell into heaven for lack of a better poetry well we want we want to listen to a couple of of, of things that you have done uh you were a part of a group called rivers of time and uh you came with an came up with an album called uh, kabu uh, and in that you have a couple of pieces that kind of tap into uh the history of spirituality in, in all of its forms uh so let's listen to the first one called gathering okay wonderful Somewhat, 
somewhat like the time you first saw someone speaking sign. So tell me a little bit about this particular piece. Uh, you know, for me, uh, gathering uh, uh, carries all kinds of images. Uh, Indeed. And um, many times, especially the nature of abstract art, you know, some people are really, they have no issues with putting a title on abstract art. Other people think it's uh, sacrilege to put a title on abstract art because they believe that the abstract art should speak to the viewer and let it and let it um, bring up whatever it might bring up without guiding their perception by giving it a title. So in this particular case, some of the improvisations on the CD, Kabu, were improvisations, nothing that was necessarily pre-planned and certainly not pre-titled. We came in with a with an inner feeling, a um, an intention, and a general general quality of of the sound and rhythm environment that we wanted to present. But then we let spirit speak through us without us prejudging. 
And the beauty of the studio process is you can listen to it afterwards and judge it afterwards and decide if you want to include it. But you don't want to prejudge while spirit is coming through. So in this particular case with the gathering, it wasn't called the gathering before we created it. It was titled the gathering after we had to put it on a CD and call it something. But what it was, was the coming together of the musicians and artists involved sitting in meditation and then rising up and turning on the machines and having one of our members who was the poet slash storyteller begin his poem. And it was the poem that then inspired and generated the sound and rhythm that accompanied it. And in my own process and artistic path, being an entertainer never interested me. What interested me was, was translating spirit, for lack of a better way to describe it, and letting it speak for itself. And if the audience liked it, wonderful. If they didn't, also wonderful. I was not attached to how it was perceived. That's called entertainment. If you have an attachment to how it's perceived and you want to present it to people that you know are going to like it, it's a beautiful thing, but that's called entertainment. That's different than channeling spirit and letting the chips fall where they may. If, 20, if I was playing for 20 people and they all came up to me afterwards and said, uh, it didn't move me. Okay, well, it didn't move you, but it moved me enough to present it. And that's where my spiritual process lives it doesn't live or depend on how it's per perceived now of course if you're looking to sell it that's a whole other conversation but as far as the creation of the art the gathering implies well let spirit come through us and then when we heard what came through we understood that it was the it, it became the first piece of the collection because now it felt like the gathering of the tribes the gathering of energy and bringing it to a pinpoint, which then opened the door to what followed. And the beauty of poetry and abstract art is you get to decide what it means to you. You know, there is no right or wrong. There's no, well, prove it. Whatever, whatever spirit came through, whatever you invited and whatever you, um, honored as it came through that's what it is then putting language on it and describing it that's a whole other whole other process and sometimes an unnecessary process so connecting it to john cage john cage uh, revolutionized the music world because what he took out what he took from it was a reflection of his studies of zen buddhism and or and uh, eastern uh, spirituality which um, had a great respect for chance and the I Ching. So he would not predetermine his music. He would let spirit come through and he was willing to channel it. And that was a revolutionary concept. People before that were never willing to buy tickets for a show at Carnegie Hall without knowing what was going to be performed. Uh, the people were not a big fan of paying for surprises. They wanted to know what they were going to get. And John Cage brought in this mysticism of silence. 
and he created a revolutionary piece and the piece was titled four minutes and I might have the seconds wrong, but I think it was like four minutes and 13 seconds. And basically he came on stage and all he did was remain totally silent for four minutes and 13 seconds. And what that revealed to the listener was the world is our music. Whatever sounds are in the room, if someone is coughing over here, if someone is whispering here, um, if something fell over here accidentally, the sounds of our world are the music of our life. And what he, what he showed was the paying attention to the world we live in and bringing that spiritual awareness to our everyday, everyday existence is the spirituality that's, that unifies rather than identifies us as one particular brand of spirituality or one particular kind. So when that four minutes and 13 seconds ended, that was the piece. And each individual listener basically heard and experienced a different four minutes and 13 seconds. So what John Cage helped teach us was the greatest music lives inside of silence, not inside necessarily of the artist's um, insistence that you hear it this way and interpret it this way. Well, when you're in your discussion with John about John Cage and silence, um, you yourself uh, put a great emphasis upon the importance of the silence that follows uh, hearing a piece. Yes. Talk with us about that a little bit. Well, I uh, quick quick anecdote um, at the Omega Institute. These um, shamans from Peru, native uh, native Indian at the at the in their roots and their spirituality. And they did an all-night program. We went into this dark space at sunset, came out at sunrise. And it was basically a, a quiet environment, simple sound, almost like an ohm, but for close to eight hours. And very much like a sweat, the model of a sweat lodge in uh, North American um, spirituality. And, you know, in the West, there's a great value paid on showing appreciation so in the west if you go to a concert the second the music ends everyone jumps into applause to show their appreciation so you have this beautiful beautiful pastoral environment that fades into this very quiet very beautiful state and the second it ends that beauty gets sabotaged with Now it's you know it's understood to be a a positive uh, response, but in the in the native world, in the world where where there's no separation between spirituality and art, it's understood that the spiritual qualities that benefits that art may bring, the healing benefits that art may that art may bring do not show up while the art is being created. They show up in the silence that follows. And in the West, we have sabotaged that to the place that we rarely ever give ourselves a chance to experience that pristine quality. You know, it's when, if there's a thunderstorm and we're surrounded by loud thunder and lightning and rain, when the thunder ends, when that when the rain disappears and now the earth is sitting quiet 
if we begin a conversation with our friend, we lose that experience. If we allow ourselves to take a deep breath and sit in that silence, we will now hear nature's silence. We will hear the songs of birds much more clearly than we might have believed possible. We will hear the wind. We will hear our own heartbeat because it's in that silence is in contrast to the explosion that we heard immediately preceding it. But if we don't let ourselves sit in that quiet space, we never get a chance to experience that benefit. But it's in that, you know, it's when everything dissolves. You know, it's when you throw a rock into a lake and it churns it up with ripples. It's a beautiful sight. But we don't experience the stillness of that lake until those ripples dissolve and disappear and turn back into a smooth surface. But many of us don't stick around long enough to experience those benefits. Well, let's listen then to our the second piece of the of the Kabu uh, album uh, called "The Call," uh, or is it "The Calling"? It actually it was originally called "The Call" because it, it's a it's a universal experience of calling calling the tribe to congregate, okay. whether it's in a cathedral, whether it's on a mountaintop, whether it's in a dark cave, it's calling the people to calling the community to congregate and focus on spiritual intention so what you hear in the call is the very first sound is in this case the conch shell now in judaism it might be the sound of the shofar the ram's horn in um in tibetan buddhism it might be the powerful gongs that they hit and again that gong is super loud the experience of spirituality again shows up in the silence after that gong dissolves into silence so you know it encourages us to stick around long enough so the other thing that the call shows us is we talk about language and the importance of language but language has no power no relevance no um it, has, it does not exist without a, the, the single quality of agreement. If the listener does not agree with what our words mean, we can speak till we're blue in the face. So what people forget about, oh yeah, communication is a great skill, but it takes two. I can speak my truth, but if the listener does not understand the words I'm using and how they relate to my truth, it's, we're, we're guessing. 90% of our conversations are assuming what the other person means because we've heard the word before and just let's move on. And, oh, yeah, I understood you, but maybe you didn't. Maybe you just think you understood because you've heard that word before. So the point is, is that, you know, again, if, if we hear someone speaking deep truths in a language we don't understand, it just sounds like garbled sounds. So the truth comes from the sounds that we make. They don't come, you know, that's why that in certain African traditions, people can speak with the drum because there's no difference between using the drum to speak or using our mouths to speak. We're making sounds and we have a listener who agrees with us what those sounds mean. It's as simple as that in my understanding. So 
when we go to a mass and a mass now is sung in Latin, we may not know what the Latin words mean, but we feel moved by the way those sounds present themselves in that acoustical space called the sacred cathedral. But we are being moved by the sounds and the overtones of those sounds, even if we don't know what the, what the words mean. And sometimes we may know what the word means, but if it's presented with sound and rhythm that is contrary, if someone says, of course I love you. Yeah, they're using the word love, but it doesn't mean what we hope it means. Not if it's presented in that tone and that rhythm. You know, there's a reason why lovers whisper and fighters shout. You know, there's a certain quality of vibration to a whisper where it almost doesn't matter what you're saying. You can whisper in someone's ear and they'll feel love. You can shout words of beauty and, and love and it gets, you know, experienced as aggression because it's not about the words. It's about the quality of sound and the spirit that that sound is connected to before it comes out of our mouth. Okay, well then let's, 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 let's listen to that piece. I noticed in the, this piece, uh, in, in one of our conversations, you talked about, uh, one, the, the sense of um, uh, words without, without meaning uh, or, or kind of uh, verbal words, and then also um, kind of the importance of um, 
of uh, instrumental music, uh, meaning that you can kind of bring your own spirituality uh, to this. Uh, so why don't you talk a little bit more about that when, in relation to the call? Sure. Well, what we talk about words, um, I have a funny relationship because my belief is that words are simply an invention and they do not mean anything unless the person we're speaking with agrees as to what they mean. They mean. Uh, that's my understanding of how language works because we've all heard the words before, but we also have our preconceived impressions of what those words mean. And a lot of times we don't give each other the respect of, of making sure we actually understand what the speaker means when they speak. Um, so what my, you know, my, the heart of what I'm trying to say is that the power of communication rests in sound, rhythm, and intention. Um, and it, with that, keeping that in mind, language is arbitrary. You know, if, if we hear someone speaking words of wisdom in a language that we don't understand, they will not sound wise. They will just sound like random sounds coming out of a person's mouth. And they will sound like gibberish because we won't have a clue to what they mean. Um, but yet we still might feel the speaker's energy and their spirit and their intention. There's a reason that people love songs that they hear sung in languages they don't understand. I can listen to a beautiful love song sung in Turkish. I might not know a single word that they're saying, but I can feel the love because of how the singer is presenting those sounds and rhythm, even though I do not understand the language per se. So with that in mind, that bring, you know, that that's the nature of instrumental music is that it opens the door to interpretation. It's really the, you know, it's the, it's kind of the, it's the beauty of poetry. The words may mean one thing, but they, the best poetry opens the opportunity for the listener to bring their own lives into the meaning of the poem. So someone might present an instrumental piece of music. It might bring up one thing for one person, something else for someone else. And they're both right. It's not, well, you yeah, you got it right and you didn't get it right. Because it, we're talking about sounds that invoke. Same thing with smell. You take the same smell, one person, it might bring them back to their pleasant childhood memories. Another person, it might bring them back to a horrible experience. Same thing with sound, same thing with rhythm. So words, in some ways, really distract us from the deeper meaning of the of the of the music. Now, another thing that you'll hear in in the song, the call, is our storyteller Sash sings that in a language that he invented. So he knows what he's saying, and the listener it does is not required to know what those words mean, but hopefully to get the feeling of what the storyteller means, what the poet means, which is a bringing together of the tribe, which is why it's called the call. The other thing you might notice in that song is, in that particular case, I am playing all the instrumental parts. So what that allows me to do is, and that's a modern technology benefit, because in the old days, you would need three people coming together to connect. And sometimes we're not all on the same plane. 
we're not all feeling that same spirit. So it runs the risk of being somewhat diluted. But today we can go into the studio and I can go in and because I'm playing all three parts, I am automatically connected to the spirit and the nervous system of those other so-called players, which are all happen to be me. So there's a connectivity that has no separation whatsoever. And that gives it a strength and a power, uh, a power of intention that's so crystal clear and almost impossible to get on a stage in a performance because you have to hope that the other human beings that you're playing with are all on that exact same plane at the exact same time. And that's an extremely rare phenomenon. And that's why some people like myself feel a greater connection to spirit in the privacy of my own studio than I do many times on stage, having to navigate and all the distractions of other human beings and the environment that are constantly working against that pristine inner self. That's the call. Well, you had the um, amazing experience, wonderful experience of getting to uh, work with uh, Carolyn Forche and her powerful poetry and particularly uh, the poem that she does, uh, The Angel of History. We're not going to get to listen to all of that, only a, a small portion of that. Uh, but after we listen to that, uh, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Sure, would love to. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned toward the past. Where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe, which keeps piling wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing in from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such a violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. The Angel of History There are times when the child seems delicate, as if he had not yet crossed into the world. When French was the secret music of the street, the cafe, the train, my own receded and became intimacy and sleep. In the world, it was the language of propaganda, the agreed-upon lie, and it bound me to itself, demanding of my life an explanation. When my son was born, I became mortal. Our days at Cape Anrage, a bleached shack of rented rooms and white air, April, at the low tide, acres of light, boats abandoned by water. While sleeping, the child vanishes from his life. Years later, on the boat from Beirut, or before the boat, an hour before, helicopters lifting a white veil of sea, a woman broken into many women. 
These boats forgotten have no keels, so it is safe for them, and the emptiness beneath them safe. April was here briefly, the breakwater visible, the lighthouse but no horizon. The music resembled April, the gulls, April, but you weren't walking toward this house. If the child knew words, if it weren't necessary for him to question me with his hands, to have known returning would be like this, that the sea light of April had been your vigilance. In the night vaulted corridors of the Hotel Dieu, a sleepless woman pushes her stretcher along the corridors of the past. Bonjour, madame. Je m'appelle Ellie. There were trains, and beneath them, laddered fields. Autumns, the fields were deliberately burned by a fire so harmless children ran through it, making up a sort of game. Women beat the flames with brooms and blankets, so the fires were said to be under control. As for the children, they were forbidden to ask about the years before they were born. Yet they burned the fields, yet everything was said to be under control, with the single phrase, death traffic. This is Isia during the war. Isieux and the neighboring village of Boisnay Cordon. This is a farmhouse in Isieux. Itself a quiet place of stone houses over the Rhone Valley, where between Aprils, 44 children were hidden, successfully, for a year in view of the mountains. Until the fields were black and snow fell all night over the little plaque which does not mention that they were Jewish children hidden April to April in Isieux near Boigny Cordon. Comment y vont les cultures? Comment devait d'oiseaux sur ma vitre en hiver? In every window, a blank photograph of their internment. Within the house, the silence of God. 44 bedrolls, 44 metal cups. And the silence of God is God. In Pipivière and Bonne-la-Roland, in Les Milles, Les Tourelles, Moussac and Aubonne, the silence of God is God. The children were taken to Poland. The children were taken to Auschwitz in Poland, singing Vunachipalem In a farmhouse still standing in Isieux, Le silence In the night vaulted corridors of the Hotel Dieu, it is winter. If a city, ruin. If an animal, hunger. If a grave, anonymous. If a century, this. Are the present hundred years a long time? But first, see whether a hundred years can be present. You had told me that uh, this poem is not just about a holocaust, but multiple holocausts. Uh, but you had also told me that your own parents were holocaust survivors. 
talk about that and particularly is that connected with you and in providing the uh, the soundtrack for this reading okay now obviously like you and your listeners know just bringing up the holocaust opens up a door which can create a whole series of podcasts in and of themselves but keeping it uh fine-tuned to the angel of history I've had the privilege of working with Carolyn Forche. I became aware of her poetry many, many years ago. I was a poetry lover throughout my 20s. I was in love with the poetry of the, uh, the Beat Generation, who introduced uh, Eastern spirituality into their, uh, into their poetry, and then that mixed with the early American culture in the late 50s, early 60s, and combined with early environmental movements, which led me to the poetry of Gary Snyder, who was one of my heroes and one of my most uh, loved voices for many, many years and up until today. And during that exploration, I came across the poetry of Carolyn Forche, and her one of her early books was called The Gathering of the Tribes. And... Um, it just it spoke to me in a deep way. I, I researched her a bit uh, uh, a bit more deeply, and discovered her roots were similar to my family's roots in Eastern Europe and connected to the Holocaust. Some of her early writings uh, connected her family's history to the Holocaust, her Holocaust experience as well. But then she went to Central America um, in the early 80s, um, into El Salvador in particular, and gave voices to the people whose voices were being stifled back then. And um, that ties in very directly to a, um, a, a great Christian, um, not so much Holocaust, but a, a deeply profound story relating to, there was a... a, a priest by the name of Oscar Romero in El Salvador, and he was assassinated by these guerrilla groups funded by U.S. interests. Long story short, she went down to El Salvador and chronicled that, that story and gave voice to the people whose voices were stifled. So then she took that experience and combined it with the Eastern European experience of Holocaust victims, as well as the um, Hiroshima experience of Japanese Holocaust survivors. And that became the book called The Angel of History. And we had a conversation and we discovered where our worlds overlapped and our interests overlapped and our art overlapped. So she offered me the opportunity to do what, I, what my, I would say, greatest love is with art. And that's not so much to be an entertainer on stage, but much more so to be an artist who connects with other, other artists and supports their vision. So whether that other artist is a poet or a theatrical um, environment or, um, or, or, or a choreographer doing dance, what I love doing is supporting that artist's vision with sound and rhythm. So I care much less about my name being on the marquee and getting the applause at the end of the performance and much more with how deeply can I go 
to help this artist reflect their story. So when Carolyn gave me that opportunity, uh, basically what I did was lived with her and her family for a couple of weeks, recorded her speaking her book, The Angel of History, then took that book and those readings back into the studio and went into deep meditation to, to get a sense of what sounds and what rhythms might best bring this poetry to life. And that's what you hear, um, you know, in that collaboration. And as far as how that's informed by my own family's history, it's true, both my parents, including many of their brothers and sisters, did get um, caught up in the Holocaust. I can talk about it for hours. All I will reveal here is the absolute miracle where during a time where two out of every three Jews were put to death, 10 out of 12 of my family survived. And that in itself is a remarkable story. And when I, when I asked them, how is that possible? They all have the same answer. It's that deep connection to spirituality and religion and holding on to that faith throughout their experience in the camps is what got them through. What my mother used to share time and time again, if you had a tiny piece of bread, the people that shared that tiny piece of bread with their neighbor survived. The people that hoarded the bread because they were afraid for their own survival perished. And what a powerful lesson that is. No matter how little you have, if, if you are de dedicated to service and sharing that with your community, spirit will grow strong and help you through. If you hoard it and believe you have to keep everything for yourself because there's not enough to go around, there will never be enough and you will lose your life force. And that was a very powerful lesson that carried through up until the present day. Well, Michael, you have given us a lot to think about, uh, a lot of wonderful insights uh, that will uh, help us all to grow. So I'm deeply grateful uh, for you being with me today. Uh, thank you uh, for what you do, what you're continuing to do. And uh, I look forward to an opportunity for us uh, to talk again. Well, David, it, it goes, it's absolute truth for me as well. 20 years have passed. It seems like 20 minutes, and it's just wonderful to sit with you face-to-face -face, as uh, much as face-to-face -face exists in these times of quarantine. But um, what a fantastic opportunity and uh, door opening to reconnect with you, to see how you are holding true to your truth and your path and sharing it with, uh, with anyone who's willing to listen because there's a great there's a great benefit to receiving the wisdom that you share, and I thank you for that. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Thank you, David. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website, theportersgate.com.
This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your-